Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20, one final time, and we'll be working our way into chapter 21 today, just briefly. This book of the Bible is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus that describe who he was and what he did while he was here on earth. Jesus is, in in my understanding, the most famous person to ever live. And if you wanted to learn about that most famous person to ever live, the best place you could go would be the Bible, and particularly would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts. And we're looking at the gospel of Luke particularly, but all four are sharing the truth about who Jesus was, what he taught, what he did while here on earth. And of these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel of Luke, which we've been studying for over a year together, focuses especially on the fact that Jesus did not come to minister to the clean, polished people who have their lives all put together. Luke again and again tells us that Jesus especially ministered to broken people, to dirty people, to outcasts, those who knew themselves to be lost and poor and broken. So throughout this gospel, we see Jesus welcoming outsiders into his kingdom, while those who appear to be insiders are actually on the outside looking in. Another theme in Luke has been that of money, and that's uh, a theme that, that we'll continue in today's passage as well. The blessing God gives to the poor is evident throughout this book. The warnings God gives to the rich to uh, tell them their need to put their hope in Him rather than in their possessions, that life is not consisting of what you own. And so uh, this brief section that we're looking at today, Luke 20, verse 45 through 21, verse 4, uh, emphasizes again these same themes of the outsiders becoming insiders, of the insiders looking from the outside looking in, and of the need to trust God for uh, a right perspective of money and to think rightly about it through, his, through his, the lens of his word. So follow along. I'll read aloud if you'd like to follow along silently as I read here from Luke chapter 20, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. My wife Clarissa and I were engaged in December of 2005, and about a week after we got engaged, uh, we met in Chiefland, Florida, where her grandmother lives and lots of her relatives live in that area. Chiefland, Florida is right in the middle of nowhere in Florida. If you want to go somewhere cool, it's not anywhere close to where Chiefland is. Uh, But uh, I flew into, I think, Tampa that, that particular evening. It was actually Christmas night of 2005. Flew in and, you know, maybe the next day or so we were celebrating Christmas with Clarissa's family here after we just gotten engaged. I had never met any of her relatives before outside of her immediate family. So this was meeting her grandmother for the first time and all the uncles and aunts and cousins. 
Like I said, Chiefland's in the middle of nowhere, so it's about as uncool of a place as you could go, and one of the main activities in that area is hunting, which I have never done in my life. And so uh, as, I, uh, as we celebrated Christmas that, that next evening after I arrived, one of Clarissa's uncles gave me a present, and I thought, well, that's really nice. I wasn't expecting, you know, these are people I've never met before. Uh, they gave me a present, and so I, I opened it up, and it was a bright orange stocking cap like the kind that you would expect to see someone hunting wearing. But again, I've never hunted before. I don't know what happened to that stocking cap, but I don't have it anymore. Uh, But all I remember thinking was like, why would they think that I would want a bright orange stocking cap? Maybe they could have thought of something cooler to give to this new relative and their family. But I guess perhaps there was a little bit of confusion of what these people were thinking this new relative would want for Christmas. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what would God want from us? If we could give God anything, what would he want? It wouldn't be an orange stocking cap, I can tell you that much. But the Bible doesn't leave any confusion for us. Where in the Bible would you go to ask, what does God want from us as his people? You could go lots of different passages, but one would be Micah 6.8. He has told you what he wants. What does he require of you? Act justly, love mercy, Walk humbly with your God. Our passage today is essentially putting that kind of a verse, that kind of a spirit, into living color for us, telling us what God wants from people. There's no confusion about it. And this passage clearly tells us that a humble heart of worship far exceeds the value of external show. Does God, in other words, here's the question, you could put it this way, does God want somebody to look really spiritual or does he want true, humble worship in someone's heart? And if you've read the book of Luke from chapter 1 all the way up here to the end of chapter 20 and beginning of chapter 21, you know the answer to that. If you've read anything else in the Bible, you know the answer to that. He's not concerned with outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Yes, we can only see outward appearance, so that's why there are you know, passages about how important it is to live a holy life, and yes, other people will see you doing that, but are you trying to draw attention to yourself? No. If you're trying to give someone a gift, maybe you could try and find out what they would actually want. Here, the Bible clearly tells us what God wants from people, and it's a humble heart of worship because that far exceeds the value of external show. What we see in verses 45 through 47 here is that Jesus condemns religious hypocrisy. And again, if you've been following along here in Luke, this is nothing new. Jesus condemns religious hypocrisy. I think there was one sermon where that was the title, was religious hypocrisy, if I recall correctly. But I've combined these two passages, verse 45 through verse 4 here, because it appears that Luke has used common vocabulary and common themes to try to help us see this, this uh, main emphasis about the contrast between the rich and the poor, the proud and the humble, the elite and the outcast. These are the two extremes, and Luke merges them together to show us the contrast between them. But Jesus says, in the hearing of all the people to his disciples, that means he knows he has an audience when he says this, but he has a particular group of people he wants to teach. He's not even trying to address the scribes. He's talking about them, but he's talking to his disciples. And he says to beware of the scribes. 
So who are the scribes? These are people who have been mentioned about 15 times in Luke to this point. They're only mentioned a time or two after this. But how many times would you say the scribes have been mentioned in a positive way? Let's put up as big of a zero as you can possibly put up. Jesus never describes the scribes, describes the scribes in a positive way. It's always, watch out for them. Beware of them. Don't be like them. Look at their terrible values and don't mimic them. The scribes are the bad guys, we could say, in the book of Luke. They're a subset of the larger group of Pharisees that other passages talk about. Sometimes he talks about beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. So in other words, the very specific narrow group of Pharisees and then also the wider range of them as well. But these were people who were responsible for teaching the law of God. They're responsible for making copies of the word of God. Perhaps you even hear the word scribe in the word scripture. This idea that they're the ones who are writing out the word of God so that it can be disseminated so that more and more people can obey the word of God. That's a good goal. But they're doing it in a way that draws attention to themselves, that seeks the favor of of other people, I should say. And Jesus doesn't look at them in a neutral way. So we shouldn't either. He says to beware of them. Beware of them. He only talks about being aware or beware. He only uses that word one other time in Luke, and it has to do with the leaven of the Pharisees. Back in chapter 12, verse 1, what is the leaven of the Pharisees? He tells us it's hypocrisy. In other words, Jesus is rinsing and repeating here. He's saying the same thing he said back in chapter 12. But why should the disciples beware of them? Because of the danger of their poisonous influence. That if you spend too much time around these people, you're going to want to start to be like them. You're going to start seeing their characteristics in your own life. Have you ever noticed this? That you kind of pick up the aroma of the people around you, so to speak. The people you hang out with the most are the ones that you become like. That's why they say birds of a feather flock together. Yes, you're gravitating toward them naturally, but you Then take on their instincts and their habits and their language. So beware of their poisonous influence, Jesus is saying. And he tells us at the very end of verse 47 that these scribes are going to receive the greater condemnation. We'll talk about the when and the where and the who will condemn them greater and things in a few minutes. But why will the scribes be condemned so greatly? Did you notice how many reasons Jesus gives us? He gives us six reasons that they will receive the greater condemnation. So let's talk about what these reasons are that Jesus says to beware of them because they're going to receive greater condemnation. The first is that they like to walk around in long robes. And all of these next several descriptors here are essentially telling us they love themselves a lot, And they like you to like them too. And they want to draw attention to themselves. They like being at the forefront of attention. So they're walking around in long robes as a way of getting attention. Their mindset seems to have been, what's the point of being holy if nobody notices? Kind of like, what's the point of having a membership In a gym, if you don't tell people, you go to the gym. What's the point of, you could fill in the blank, you know, having a particular diet. If you don't tell people, I'm on keto right now or whatever else. Like, you've got to make sure you throw that into every conversation or no one's going to care. 
And so these people are wearing long robes because, look, if we're going to be holy, we might as well let people know that we're really holy. This is the opposite of true holiness. A truly holy person doesn't want people to spend time contemplating them. A truly holy person wants people to contemplate the Lord and observe the Lord Himself. So these robes that they're wearing were probably, they had like special ornaments about them. Maybe they had little bells on them. Maybe they had extra long fringes on them that were different colors. Anything to draw attention to the fact that these people were especially uh, worthy of notice. They, were, so they wanted to be especially visible. They wanted to be uh, getting people's attention. So anything you can do to grab attention. I've noticed over the last uh, football season here that the ESPN website has taken notice every Sunday of what the uh, athletes are wearing when they show up to the stadium. I could not care less. I have never clicked to see the pictures of Joe Burrow wearing his $20,000 sunglasses or whatever they, they are. I didn't know you can make sunglasses that expensive. I don't know what they're made out of, but I just think I would break them, and that's why I'm not going to get Expensive sunglasses. But these guys are wearing crazy suits and crazy sunglasses and crazy shoes and belts and whatever else they can do to draw attention to themselves so that ESPN can talk about it. Why can't you just show up normally and go do your job? That's the question I would ask. But essentially they're trying to say, we're in the upper echelon. We deserve attention. You should want to be like us. And the scribes were doing the same thing with their long robes, as athletes do today. Here they are also, in verse 45, they love greetings in the marketplaces. This is probably not just people saying hello. This would, in some way, be people giving special attention to them. Stepping off to the side so that they can walk by you. Uh, You know, kind of rolling out the red carpet, which is super plush, I'm sure. And they love the feeling that people are looking at them are hushing their conversations because this scribe is about to walk by us. They're letting people move. You know, these people are letting the scribes move to the front of the line. Like, oh, you don't need to wait for the Six Flags ride like the rest of us. Let you take the pick of the litter at the various markets that they're attending in the marketplaces. They love the greetings, which probably is just a way of saying they love people talking about them. Who of us doesn't? Well, many of us don't actually, but... Many people do like people to give them attention. So they're going to the marketplaces. In other words, they're going out in public. They're going to the synagogues, it says, and they like the best seats in the synagogue, probably front and center, as you'd expect. Not just so they can hear most clearly, so that everybody who walks into the synagogues and maybe has to stand on the outer fringes of the synagogues can see, oh, there's the really spiritual, really important ones down front. kind of like at the Oscars or at a presidential dinner or the people who are in the skyboxes at the Super Bowl and the video, the the cameras shine attention on them to say, look who's here tonight. That politician or that athlete or that movie star are all in the house tonight. And the point is, they want the best seats so that people will see that they're there. And then they want the places of honor at feasts. Luke 14, verses 7 through 11, talked about this uh, to some extent where... These people wanted to be at the head of the table, closest to the, the host, because those were the most important seats, which meant that's where the most important people would sit. And Jesus warned his followers from being like the scribes who wanted to sit at the head of the table where the most important people sat. 
So essentially, these people were seeking attention in every setting imaginable. In public, in the marketplaces, in religious worship, in the best seats in the synagogue, and in private, in household banquets where they're getting exclusive invitations to come, and they want the attention in those places as well. Probably the most unusual sounding description of these scribes is this next one, that they devour widows' widows' houses. How do you devour someone's house? Basically, this is probably kind of elaborate speaking about the way that they're taking advantage of the vulnerable. If you want to describe who is a vulnerable person in the first century when this was being written by Luke and when Jesus was ministering, who would come to mind? Widows would be right at the top of the list. Even saying a poor widow would be totally redundant. Why would you say a poor widow? Of course she's poor. She has no one to take care of her. This was the point of one of the stories, I think back in chapter 7 or 8 or so, where a widow's only son died. Why is that a problem? Because if he's dead, there's nobody to take care of mom. So this widow, a widow in Jesus' day, was particularly vulnerable, particularly poor. And it sounds like these scribes were maybe the ones who were evicting widows out of their homes, perhaps making false claims like, hey, if you'll give us you know, 20% of your goods, whatever you have left over after your husband died, we'll take good care of you spiritually and we'll take care of you in the temple by you know, giving some of our, our uh, offerings in your name or something along those lines. Making false promises, much like televangelists do or certainly have in the past. And I'll tell you, our church has, I think, 11, you can call them different things, community commitments, I think is the way we word it in the bulletin, core values, values. You call them what you want. One of them is defending the rights of the defenseless. And so what we want to do in our congregation is continue to nurture a spirit in which we take care of the people who don't have the ability to take care of themselves. That's why we often pray, yes, for you know, pro-life ministries. That's why we uh, have a benevolence fund so to help where we can for those who are in particular uh, trying needs in their lives. And so Essentially, what we're seeking to do is the opposite of what the scribes are trying to do. They're devouring poor widows' houses. They're taking away the resources, the few resources that a widow has. And we as a congregation, by God's grace, are trying to help take care of them. So they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, or they're pretending to be spiritual, they're doing that by making long prayers. Are long prayers bad? I don't know. I have a whole page right here. bullet points from my prayer about 20 minutes ago or so. I hope long prayers aren't bad, but of course, what is a long prayer? Some long, long, long prayers would be bad, I suppose. But what does Jesus mean when he says that they pray long prayers? This should make you think back just probably a couple pages, but probably a couple months in terms of time since we started studying that passage. Back to Luke 18, when Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This should sound familiar with our current passage in mind. Two men went up into the temple, which is where this, today's passage is happening. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, or the scribe, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
It's not a very long prayer, but what's the point of what Jesus is saying in that parable? He's standing up in the middle of the temple, speaking loudly about how holy he is. I think Jesus is approaching the same problem in this passage here. The issue isn't necessarily the length, but the reason for the length. Why do you pray for half an hour out loud in the middle of the room so everybody hears you? Maybe so people can give you attention. Just like the reason you like the best seats in the synagogue and so forth. And about all of these matters, Jesus is not clear. He's not indifferent about what these scribes are doing, what these Pharisees are doing. He's not neutral about it. He says they're going to receive greater condemnation. They're going to be judged more severely on the last day when they stand before the Lord. It is going to be worse for people who tried to draw attention to just how holy they were instead of drawing attention to the holy Lord they were seeking to worship. They're going to receive this greater condemnation because of the six characteristics we just mentioned about how they love themselves more than the Lord, clearly. They're going to receive this greater condemnation at the judgment seat from the Lord. And a passage like this should make us think of a couple other passages. One is 1 Corinthians 13.3, where Paul says, if I give up everything that I have, but I don't have love, you know, I'm the poorer for it, essentially. I gain nothing, he says. But they're going to receive a, a, a stricter, a more severe, a harsher judgment than others because they're proud and greedy and demeaning when they should be the ones setting the pace. Again, these are the religious leaders. These are the people you should want to respect. You should want to emulate them. Remember Paul himself says, follow me as I follow Christ? That's ultimately what any spiritual leader should be saying to their followers. And why Jesus had to say, yeah, be careful about these guys because they're not actually setting you up for true worship and for honoring the Lord. James 3.1 says that increased responsibility means increased accountability, where he says, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And these, you know, G, uh, James wrote that after a story like this one would have happened, but possibly with a passage like this one in mind. You don't want to be like the scribes. You don't want to be drinking in the poisonous influence of these people who truly only love themselves, not other people. That's why they devour widows' houses take away their resources, the few resources they had, and they truly don't love the Lord if they're drawing attention to themselves rather than to Him. So Jesus condemns religious hypocrisy. Here in verses 21 through 4 of chapter 21, Jesus commends faith-filled humility. He gives a commendation rather than condemnation. He commends faith-filled humility. So this passage is, I'm including this here with this contrast to the rich, uh, spiritually looking scribes because Luke uses common themes and common vocabulary that the other uh, New Testament writers didn't necessarily include, at least as specifically as he did. I think he was trying to compare and contrast the poor widows with the wealthy scribes by describing them as rich. And so Jesus looked up and saw the rich, possibly the same rich scribes he was just talking about, putting their gifts into the offering box. So in the temple, what we know 
from John, I think chapter 8, is that there was a specific place where the offerings would be received. Well, we know from outside sources, in other words, not the Bible, but sources that explain what Jewish life was like in the first century, um, that there were 13 offering boxes in the temple. And you could go and pick which one you're going to put them in, and they were marked what, what you know, source that, that, where that money was going to go, basically. Like, if you want to particularly support widows, put your money in here. If you want to particularly support the temple workers, put your money in here, and on and on. So 13 boxes. And it was in a particular part of the temple, a particular area of the temple. And so it sounds like Jesus is standing off to the side with his disciples around him. But he looks up now after he's finished this comment about the scribes who are probably milling around, wearing their long robes, loving the adulation they're getting from people, waving back in return. And he, while he's watching this happen, he sees a poor old woman. How could he tell that she was a poor old woman? Probably by what she was wearing? probably by how she walked, the look on her face, just bedraggled look of just, my life has been hard. I have very little to give. And yet Jesus sees her go up and she takes two small coins. These little coins would have been like somebody working for five or ten minutes at any average job. This was not a day's worth. This was not a half a day's worth. This was like five minutes of work in that day, in that era. So it's like somebody working at Chick-fil-A, they clock in, two minutes later they clock out. What do you get on your paycheck for that? Like 30 cents. And essentially, what does 30 cents get you today when a, a gallon of gas is like 370 if you get a deal? It gets you nothing. These would have been like pennies. How many of us still at our ages Lean over to pick up a penny that you see in a parking lot. Okay, two people, thank you. We are grateful for your frugality. Many of us say like, okay, Andrew, pick up that penny, right? A five-year-old, that's a lot of money. What's it going to get you? Absolutely nothing. But if you keep tallying them up like Rick and Bethany, you're going to end up with more later on. But all that to say, these, this widow put in the very smallest amount imaginable. Okay, she could have only put in one. She put in both, which does tell us something about her. And Jesus comments on this. He says, truly, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And by that, he means all of them combined. Look at all these rich scribes with gazillions of dollars flowing out of their pockets, and they drop in a couple quarters. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So she has demonstrated a higher level of worship because she has sacrificed more. Where else has Jesus talked about abundance in Luke? Just a couple other places. One is in Luke twelve fifteen. He says in a very similar passage to this one, what I'm trying to say by asking a question like that is that Jesus is saying the same kinds of ideas over and over again. He's warning us about the same kinds of sins, the same kinds of problems that could tempt us. He says in Luke 12, 15, be on your guard. That sounds a lot like beware in today's passage. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You may think, scribes, that your life is wonderful because you have money flowing out of your pockets. But life is not about the abundance of your possessions. He also says in Luke 
6.45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A picturesque way of saying that what we say is coming from inside of us. It's just the overflow of what's already inside of us. So when we say something, then we say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Well, you kind of did, actually. Like, it just told us what was really inside of you. But Christ, Jesus, talked about poverty, talked about the poor all over the book of Luke. He said in chapter 4 that he came to preach good news to the poor. Later on, he says to tell John the Baptist, who was in jail, that the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He told his followers to invite the poor to the feast. He talked about a poor man named Lazarus who was miserable in this life. Sounds like much like this widow, but then had an eternal inheritance, unlike the wealthy man in that story. The rich ruler should give all he had to the poor. He said that Zacchaeus gave half of his goods to the poor. And in today's passage, this poor widow gave all that she had. That's just one cherry-picked list of the ways that Jesus has talked about money throughout this book. Luke has really emphasized that for us because Jesus was emphasizing it throughout his ministry. And this should remind us, and I realize that you know, sometimes my sermons kind of go on and on, but if, if I can get your attention for a second here, this is what you need to hear. There is a problem in life far greater than being poor, and it is being outside of the kingdom of God. What this passage, what this book of Luke has told us over and over again is you, above all else, want to be in right relationship with God. Forget having your health problems fixed. Forget having your financial problems solved and having the security that you can go to bed at night because you know you've got that extra money in the bank. Your biggest problem is your sin. And your greatest need is forgiveness. And that's only available to you through Jesus. You don't need the forgiveness of your parents. It's nice if you have that. But what if your parents don't talk to you because you follow Christ? What you need is the forgiveness of Jesus. And so though this woman had very little to live on, she was aware that she was poor spiritually. And that's what we need to evaluate in our own hearts is when I stand before God, am I saying, I deserve to be in your presence forever? Or are we saying, I am the farthest thing that you would ever want to forgive? It's only because of the forgiveness that Christ offers us that we can have a right relationship with God. In a works-based system, the handsome amount that the scribes were throwing into the offering boxes would make them a shoe-in for being in God's kingdom forever. Like, oh, obviously, you guys are the insiders because you put in so much in those offering boxes. But this is not how God's economy works. Success in God's kingdom, wealth in God's economy are very different than the definitions you would get in our society today. But this woman put in all she had. She understood that she was bankrupt. Back in chapter 6, verse 20, the reason the poor are blessed is because they understand they have nothing to give. Unlike the rich who seem to think that they can offer something to God. This woman, it seems, was physically and spiritually poor But it means that she was rich because she was rich through faith in Christ. Rich in God's economy. Throughout this book, we've talked about how 
Luke was emphasizing what it looks like to follow Jesus. What would we say from this passage today? Those who follow Jesus, what? Fill in the blank. Those who follow Jesus are marked by humility, generosity, and sacrifice. Those who follow Jesus hate hypocrisy. Those who follow Jesus love to minister to the poor. Those who love Jesus and follow him pray for people like the scribes who are convinced of their own spirituality but are actually outside of God's family. You may feel like you have very little to offer. You think like, I have no gifts, spiritually speaking. I have no way that I can contribute to a church family. But you can sing, you can smile, you can talk to other people and encourage them. You can serve at a work day in March. You can water flowers during the summer. You can pull weeds during the summer. You can help clean the building or fix broken items. You can brew coffee. You can straighten chairs. There's always more to be done. You can use the gifts that God has given you, the abilities that God has given you to serve other people, even if you're not outgoing or extroverted. Maybe you don't love to teach in public. There are ways you can serve. You can give your widow's might in our church. So this story, if you were going to try and summarize it, is about the wealthy insiders exalting themselves at the expense of the lowly outsiders. The wealthy insiders are exalting themselves. The lowly widows, the poor people are being pushed to the outside. But what does this book tell us over and over again? Jesus takes the world and turns it upside down. The poor become rich, the rich become poor. The exalted become lowly, the lowly are exalted. This is what Mary's song back in chapter 1, where she is celebrating the news that the angel has just given her. You're going to give birth to the Savior. What did she say? God lifts up the poor. God feeds the hungry. It is a beautiful description of what this passage is trying to illustrate for us. Success and wealth are measured differently in God's kingdom. The poor widow was the one who is truly rich and truly successful. And if that sounds weird to you, like, no, she's not a success, it's because our understanding of what success is has been colored by the world, has been colored by Fortune 500 or by ESPN or by CNN or any number of other cultural markers. This is what it looks like to have met success in this life. This poor widow is a success, is truly wealthy. The book of Luke is about redemptive reversals. Jesus taking the world and turning it upside down, just like he did in so many other passages before this one in the Bible. Think of the story of Joseph. He's thrown in a pit. He's at the bottom, as low as you can possibly go, and God exalts him to second in command in Egypt. Or you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a burning furnace because they won't worship a false god, and they are exalted. Or you think of Daniel, not willing to corrupt himself in the worldly environment he was living in in Babylon, and he gets exalted in that kingdom. You think of the story of Esther, the story of Jesus. All of these people being brought down low and then exalted, being lifted up in God's eyes. What does Jesus want? There's no confusion. You don't have to ask the question, what should we get this new guy for Christmas? What does Jesus want? He wants humble piety. He wants us to have hearts that are eager to worship for the sake of God's pleasure rather than for the way that it draws attention to ourselves. 
He wants faithful disciples who follow him rather than people seeking fame and fortune. May God help us as individual Christians, as a church family seeking to follow him together. May he help us believe that a humble heart of worship far exceeds the value of external show. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are glorious. You are glorious for revealing this passage to us, revealing this truth, for giving your Son, for telling us that there were people who were willing to give all, even though it probably took away any sense of security that this woman would have had. And she probably didn't even know she was being watched by Jesus. May we be willing to follow you even though no one cares. No one pays attention, even though no one cheers for us and no one greets us in public places or thinks that we are all that because of the way that we live. May we be willing to believe what your word tells us, that the rich become poor and the poor become rich, the exalted are brought down low, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In Christ's name, amen.